in Eastern Europe right now, there is chaos and fear, as many thousands of people are fleeing away from the conflict in Ukraine. Well over a million people leaving behind their homes and livelihoods to find shelter and refuge in other countries. Tell Romania, the Ministry of Doctor and Mrs Hamilton Burr have been coordinating funds from people here in Northern Ireland to directly help refugees crossing from Ukraine to Romania. Huge lines of cars and people have formed at the border and these people need basic help. They need food and clothing and bedding and medicine. Tell Romania are transferring funds to volunteers on the ground so that help goes exactly where it's needed. In Ukraine, one of the largest Christian groups is the Baptist Association and one of the local pastors wrote, Each regional Baptist community has people responsible to coordinate the work with the Ukrainian refugees. Our churches have taken in hundreds of refugees. Can you help to get much-needed aid to people in need at the border crossings? Any amount, large or small, will help, and it will be put to good use, and it will make a difference. Go now to Facebook and search for Tell Romania and contact them there. Or email me, Bob McAvoy, on bob at bobmcavoy.co.uk. That's bob at b-o-b-m-c-e-v-o-y dot co dot uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving. Thanks for praying. Semper Reformator Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Turn please to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We're just going to read a few verses from Mark, then we'll turn to Acts chapter 19. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I sent my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he 
shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Acts 19 and verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. So now Paul has made a point of coming to Ephesus, and he has found that there is a group of disciples. Now who were they? Commentators differ. Some think that since these people had only had John's baptism, they must have been John's followers. And if so, that means that they were not yet Christians. They were maybe Jews who would be genuinely seeking the Messiah. Other commentators differ from that. They point out that for Luke to speak of disciples would imply that these men were actually believers in Christ, people whose understanding of the faith was in some way defective or deficient. Now, you can decide that for yourself. But if these were disciples of Jesus, then it throws up a really interesting problem for us. And it is how do we relate to and how do we cope with sincere professed believers whose understanding of Christian doctrine is far less than perfect. In fact, far less than what we would call orthodox. In fact, sometimes even verging on the heretical. So we have some de facto of Christianity. Of course, there are very many strange groups, aren't there? With strange beliefs, sheltering under the umbrella of what's called Christendom, what we would refer to as the visible church. Now, we understand perfectly that ultimately one, the, the, only the Lord himself knows those who are his. 
sat with a woman on I'm glad of that. I sat with a woman on Friday for a couple of hours, nearly maybe just over an hour. Her son of 34 years of age has died and perhaps died in very tragic circumstances. And I talked with her for a good while uh, and eventually she said to me, the thing I need to know is where is he now? Where is he now? I, I can't answer that question. The Lord knows who is his. All I could say to her is we entrust him into the God who always does what is right. Always does what is just. Only the Lord knows. But somehow, as Paul spoke to these believers, he seems to have discovered that there's something lacking. There's some doctrinal abnormality. So in verse 2, he says to them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Now, with no record of Paul having said that to anyone else up to this point. Something's wrong here. And they replied, they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now that's hard to understand, isn't it? How could they not have heard of the Holy Spirit? Sure, if they had been disciples of John, how could they not have heard that there was the Holy Spirit? The disciples of John would have known what we had earlier read in Mark chapter 1, wouldn't they? The disciples would have known that John preached in Mark chapter 1 and verse 7 to 9, that passage that we read together, that there cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not unworthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. That was John's message. John was a forerunner. We call him John the Baptist. But baptism wasn't his message. Baptism was only an outward sign of the repentance that he had preached, which others had come to. So you have to work really hard to avoid those verses. Surely they would have heard about the baptism of Jesus. Surely they would have heard that when the Holy Ghost had descended upon the Saviour that day, and that John recalls that coming up out of the water, Mark tells us that the heavens were opened and that the Spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. Thank you, you have to work really hard to avoid that verse when you're one of those people who don't believe that God consecutively, when, you, when you're one of those people that believe that God consecutively manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, when you think that it's one time God is acting in the manifestation of the Father and the next time he's acting in the manifestation of the Son and right now he's acting in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's what you call oneness Pentecostalism. And if you go on to a church's website 
and you read carefully their doctrine of the Trinity, and they say in their doctrine of the Trinity that God manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you may assume right away that they have a defective view of the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, co-equal and co-eternal. In that verse in Mark, we have all three persons of the Trinity acting together simultaneously. So F.F. Bruce, commentating on this, suggests that they, what they didn't know about the Holy Spirit was the events that occurred on the day of Pentecost. He suggests that these men were believers in Jesus who had never had any personal experience of the Holy Spirit's work in their own lives. So Paul probes further in verse 3, and he says unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. So these disciples were either believers in Jesus or believers in the promised Messiah who was Jesus, but they were lacking. They were lacking in doctrinal knowledge. And because they were lacking in doctrinal knowledge, because they hadn't been taught and catechized and built up in their understanding of the faith, their personal experience of Christianity is deficient. Now, Paul's answer to defective Christianity is this. And I suggest it should be ours too, to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel in all its fullness. So having discovered that these people have never heard of the work of the Holy Spirit, they were, as we talked about last week, people who perhaps had a profession but no possession. And Paul, having learned this in verse 4, begins to talk about the baptism of John. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now there's a gospel message in a single verse. Repentance and belief in Christ. Isn't that the gospel? Repent of your sins, trust the Lord Jesus, rest on his finished work. He is the Messiah who came to take away all of our sins. He reminds these disciples who are mingling in the church that John's ministry is not primarily about baptism, that John's ministerial purpose is preparatory. He is preparing the way for the coming of Jesus John's ministry is not to be an enduring religion or a sect within Judaism. You see, there must have been disciples of John traveling around, even as far as Ephesus, preaching the message that John preached. And that was a denial of John's ministerial purpose. John's purpose was not to come to form a new religion. It was to point people to Christ and to declare that the Messiah will come in the person of Jesus. 
In that passage that we heard at the beginning of the service in John chapter 1, we hear these words. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. The voice of one, Mark chapter 1 and verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So Paul simply preaches John's theology to John's disciples. Repent and believe in Christ. John baptized people, but his baptism was a symbol of repentance. His theology is a proper mix of law and gospel. Repent of your sins, believe and trust in Christ. The very same gospel that we preach today. The only difference is that while we point sinners back to Calvary, John points them forward to the coming Messiah. I wonder about my own response to people who are professing believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, whose doctrinal understanding falls somewhat short of orthodoxy. How do we think of them? How do we speak of them? Paul didn't write them off or look down upon them or disrespect them. When we meet them, our conversation with them will not be a constant argument. It will be a conversation that is savoured with gospel truth, pointing them winsomely to the Saviour that they might respond to as the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and illuminates their minds. Let's move on to verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When the twelve men realized the gospel, heard that John's preaching was actually focused on Christ. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now you can see the progression here. They have been pointed to Christ by Paul and they are baptized in the name of Christ. Now that raises two important doctrinal issues, especially when we're dealing with doctrinally different believers. One of those is when do we practice rebaptism? And the second is, what is the actual formula for baptism? Now, we have no problem knowing that. We have our Reformed confessions, don't we? Of course we have. We know exactly what we're doing. But I wonder when you look back at the previous chapter and think of Apollos again. Look back at chapter 18 and... Verse 25, where it tells us this man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord 
knowing only the baptism of John. But there's no talk whatsoever, no record of him being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All that happened there was that he was re-catechized by, um, by Priscilla and Aquila. But yet look at what it says about him. He was fervent in the spirit. Now that could be translated simply that he had a lively faith. That he was already, even though his baptism had been the baptism of John, he had met the Savior. He had been filled with the Holy Ghost. He had a Christian testimony. He was admitted to Christian fellowship and ministry. Now that he's been brought into fuller knowledge of the of the gospel, he's a born-again, saved believer, and the method of his baptism is not an issue. And these believers in Ephesus, they had no such belief. There's no evidence whatsoever of them being filled with the Holy Spirit like there is, or fervent in the Spirit like there is with Apollos. So Paul rebaptizes them. It's the single issue of rebaptism in the whole of the New Testament. And I would say to you that like the rest of the book of Acts, it is not a doctrinal precedent for us. It was a one-off particular case. Now here's where you might disagree with me. And you're entitled to, okay? Don't, don't throw me out afterwards. Someone once asked me if a Roman Catholic was saved and wanted to join the church, would I insist on rebaptizing him? My personal answer, yours may be different, was no. If he's saved, I would accept him into membership. Not a problem. Now, I know that you differ from me in that because you are baptistic. But this is just me. I'm only talking about me. But I then made the next proviso. And my next addition to that was, but mind you, if he was a member of the Church of God, I would insist on rebaptizing him. Now, why? Well, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. One of the characteristics of the oneness Pentecostals is their mode of baptism. I, I realize that this is probably not a good time to say this, but there's one very large church in Belfast and if you were to go to a baptismal service in that church, you will hear them baptizing people in the beautiful name of Jesus. So they have their water, and they have their people coming out and giving testimony of saving faith, and they will bring them into the water, and they will baptize them in the beautiful name of Jesus. I will tell you, and I will be rigorous on this one, 
that that is not a Christian baptism. That is not a Christian baptism. And they quote this verse as their rationale. It's not. Acts is not given to us to establish doctrine. Acts is given to us to illustrate doctrine in dynamic action. When these people were baptized in the name of Jesus, it is simply to inform us in the text that they have now been baptized into Christ as opposed to their previous baptism into the name of John. And I can almost guarantee you that when John baptized them in the river Jordan, he didn't take them into the river. He didn't take them by the hand and place his arm round their shoulder and put them into the water and say, I baptize you in the beautiful name of John the Baptist. They had been baptized with John's baptism. Not in the beautiful name of John. Neither being baptized into Christ. In his name. And Christian baptism. And the formula for Christian baptism is given to us by the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Where Christ himself instructs us. Go ye therefore and teach or disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now that's Christian baptism. It is not Christian baptism to be baptized in the beautiful name of Jesus. And that's why I say to you that if someone from that kind of fellowship who had been baptized with that form, that non-Trinitarian, that Trinitarian denying formula, I would insist that their baptism is deficient. And that they should be rebaptized. They won't take it badly, me saying that. They would say exactly the same of me. So the twelve disciples have been brought to a fuller experience of Christ, and they have responded to the preaching of the gospel, and they have been baptized. So thanks for listening to the podcast today. If you would like to help to get the podcast better known, there's a really easy way that you can do that. Go onto your podcast app on your phone or your mobile device. Search for the Semper Reformata podcast. Subscribe to it. And if your podcast app allows you to, give it a five-star rating. And that will help others to find the podcast more easily. So thanks again for listening. It's been a pleasure talking to you and an absolute privilege. I am your servant for Christ's sake.